Okay, praise God. Okay, open up your Bibles to Daniel 5, 1 through 31, and we're going to get right into the Word of God. Daniel 5, 1 through 31. And if you're joining us here in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on the screen at home. But Daniel 5, 1 through 31. And we're going to be reading the entire thing. So just hunker down, grab your coffee if you have coffee. No, it's not that long. It's a very interesting story. It is always good, God's word. Daniel 5, 1 through 31. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, meaning his face, the color of his face changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in and they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter." But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel, verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. 
And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory, Lord, and you are awesome. You are holy. And Lord God, you are able to speak to your people. Lord, throughout the ages, you have always spoken your word to people who desperately need to hear it. So Lord God, I pray that you would speak today, right now, that you would open our hearts to receive your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let us be like Daniel, Lord, who knows the living God, who honors you, who knows your word and delivers it when necessary. So Lord God, let us be people like him and not people like Belshazzar. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, praise God. Well, today we're going to be continuing our series, Disciples at Work, and we have come to the part in Daniel's book that describes one of the most important and well-documented events in history, the fall of Babylon. So we're going to get into it a little bit. You'll see how well-documented this is. But this is all laid out in history. But in this chapter, we also get a picture of the foundational role of character in a person's life. In fact, the foundational role of character in an entire nation's life. So character is really highlighted as a central point here. And when we, see, when we say character, we mean the sum total of a person's traits and behaviors, of that person's nature. Here's another way to say it. It is a person's moral or ethical quality. I like this defini definition. Simply put, character is who you are at your very core. So that's your character. And very much like pride, which we saw last week in Daniel chapter 4, a person's character has profound consequences in our life and work. Profound consequences. Far more than people think or realize. You know, as the saying goes, character matters. Amen? Character matters. 
You know, Philip Brooks, he was a minister in the mid uh, or late 1800s, and he gave a series of lectures at Yale University, very famous, very well known. But in his lectures, he said, the great purpose of life is the shaping of character by truth. If you're wondering what is the goal of life, according to this minister in the 1800s, he said, it is the shaping of character by truth. More than anything, this is what God desires. This is God's very goal for your life, to make your character like the character of Jesus. So according to Brooks, a person's character is that foundational and that consequential. Brooks also said this about character, but he said in order for ministers, and this whole, this whole lecture series was to ministers, but he said in order for ministers to become effective, they have to kind of go through this process of preparation, and this is what he said, it must be nothing less, this preparation, than the kneading, like kneading dough, right? The kneading and tempering of a man's whole nature or character till it becomes of such a consistency and quality as to be capable of transmission. So he said every minister has to go through this kind of preparation. And I think it's not only true of ministers, but anyone who's working in any vocation, whether it's medicine, business, teaching, or ruling a country, you name it. But there is a preparation you need to go through if you're going to be effective and last in your field. If you're going to actually get to a point where you pass on all the things that you've done and learned and very, the very person that you are in that field, if you want to pass that on, you need character. This is what Brooks is saying. So character is foundational. So now when we look at Daniel chapter 5, character mattered in the fall of Babylon. It mattered. Yes, God is sovereign over all the nations. The book of Daniel makes that very clear. God determines when nations rise and fall. But God's sovereignty doesn't mean that the rise and fall of nations is like a flip of a switch. It's not like, okay, you're going to fall, you're going to rise. It's not just arbitrary like that. But Babylon was built through the noble character of Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar was actually a great king. And Babylon fell through the corrupt character of Belshazzar. So yes, God is sovereign. He determines when nations rise and fall, but it happened through the noble character and the bad character of the leaders. And so character matters. And so today I want to look at Belshazzar's character, which really climaxes, this is the climax in this chapter in verses 25 through 28, but it really climaxes on his character. But in these verses, God's handwriting basically appeared on the wall and, th- and this handwriting said, in so many words, your days are numbered, Belshazzar, and your kingdom will be ripped away from you. And why? Okay, why was it suddenly coming to an end? Because your character has been weighed in the balance and you've been found lacking. So that's the climax. Okay, that's the whole reason why this nation came to an end, his life came to an end. So I want to look at Belshazzar, and through his example, we're going to look at the illusion, the revealing the weighing, and then finally the outcome of character. There's a lot that we can learn about character here. And today we're only going to get through the first two and then we'll finish the last two next week. But the illusion of character, the revealing of character, the weighing of character, and finally the outcome of character. So first, the illusion of character. The illusion of character. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And his wives and concubines. And here they are all drinking in front of, of um, Belshazzar. 
And then at one point, Belshazzar commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, brought from Jerusalem. So remember, way back in Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, and took all the sacred vessels, the sacred cups and goblets and everything there, and he brought it to Babylon. And so on this night, Belshazzar had this wonderful thought. Let's bring those things out, right? And fill it up with wine. And they began to drink out of them, giving praise to the gods of Babylon, the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here's this scene. And here, without any warning or explanation, we jump years into the future from the previous chapter. So if you remember from last week, we were in chapter 4, and Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, right? This is kind of later in his reign over Babylon, and he was boasting about how great he is, and then God humbled him. Well, now we jump to chapter 5, and without warning, we just fast forward many years. This is about 70 years since Daniel chapter 1, and about 25 years since the previous chapter. So this is way in the future. So by this time, Nebuchadnezzar has passed away. He's gone. He died. And Daniel, who when we first met was maybe 15 years old, he is now in his 80s. He's a senior citizen. And here he is still serving Babylon as an elder statesman. So this is the context. But who is Belshazzar? So without warning, we fast forward all these years, and also without warning, we're introduced to this person, Belshazzar. So we meet him for the first time here without any introduction. So who is he? Well, for the longest time, until about the mid-1800s, historians thought Belshazzar was made up because all the historical records, all the ancient documents they knew about said that Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon, this man named Nabonidus. So they thought Belshazzar was just made up. He's a fictional character. Whoever wrote Daniel just made him up, like, all, like a lot of the rest of the book. And yet, like so many other parts of the Bible, archaeology eventually confirmed the truthfulness of Scripture. So archaeology continues to do that. But since the mid-1800s, there have been 37 ancient records that were found all talking about Belshazzar. Isn't that amazing? So archaeologists finally dug this up. And in these records, Belshazzar is mentioned by name as both the son and co-ruler of, of Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon that historians knew about. So here he is in all these ancient documents. And Nabonidus had made Belshazzar a co-ruler because Nabonidus lived about 500 miles south of Babylon. This would be modern-day Arabia, but he lived far away from the city of Babylon. And he stayed there the uh, almost the entirety of his 17-year reign. Now historians, even ancient historians like Herodotus, already knew that about Nabonidus. They already knew that Nabonidus didn't live in Babylon. But they didn't know why he was out there. Maybe it was because of a coup. But here's the point. If Nabonidus was not in Babylon, then it makes perfect sense why the Bible only mentioned Belshazzar as the king of Babylon on the night it fell. Because don't make any mistake here. The chapter we just read, that is the very last night of that empire. And Nabonidus is not mentioned. People thought this was just made up. But now we understand why. Nabonidus was hundreds of miles away, but Belshazzar was there. So the Bible is incredibly accurate, and the Bible was also careful to record Belshazzar offering Daniel the third highest position over Babylon. 
We read that in verses 7, 16, and 29. But why the third highest position? This is the greatest reward Belshazzar could give to whoever could interpret this writing. But why the third highest? Well, the reason we know why now is because Nabonidus was the first ruler. He was actually alive during this. He actually was the king still. Then there's Belshazzar, the co-ruler. He was second in command. And therefore, Daniel was offered the third position. Does that make sense? The Bible's so accurate. So the Bible was accurately conveying what happened to Belshazzar on this night. But he was the second highest ruler of Babylon. He was co-regent with Nabonidus, his father. He was most likely the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. I know repeatedly he was called the son of Nebuchadnezzar, but he was probably the grandson. There was no word for grandson or grandfather in Aramaic. So they would just say father or father's father. I mean, even Jesus is called the son of David, right? Even though there are many people in between. But this is the same thing. Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And he was the one sitting on the throne the night Babylon fell to the Persians and the Medes. So the name Belshazzar means Bel, protect the king. And as we read earlier, very clearly, Bel did not protect the king. So he was killed on that night. So this is who Belshazzar was, and here he is holding a feast for a thousand of his princes, lords, wives, and concubines. Now, back in that time, this was a very modest-sized party. I know that sounds insane, right? But that's just very modest. Because historians know that back in that time, in the Middle East, kings were notorious for enormous parties. But Persian kings regularly had parties daily that had 15,000 guests eating all kinds of food, all kinds of meat. It would last for days. Alexander the Great had 10,000 guests at his wedding festival. So a party with just 1,000 people was no big deal for a Babylonian king. But this was not just another dinner party as we know it. But this was an orgy. There was all manner of sexual immorality, drunkenness, revelry. I don't need to get into the details. You can just imagine And this is well attested to by engravings that archaeologists have dug up. But it was wild. I would even use the word pornographic. I mean, it was an insane party happening. And at the center of all of this was Belshazzar, like a champion of the party. It says in verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Very important phrase, in front of the thousand. In other words, He was the life of the party. All eyes were on him. The spotlight, he was the center of attention. And like some sort of hero of wine and food and sex, here he is drinking and getting drunk in front of all his guests. This is Belshazzar. And I can imagine if I was there that night, every time he like downed another mug or, you know, jug of beer, everybody probably erupted in cheers. But this was happening on that night. You know, what a guy, right? What a guy, kind of like this hero of the party. And here's the most interesting thing about this entire scene. The most interesting thing is that ancient historians like Herodotus, he's a Greek historian, ancient Greek historian, but he tells us that on that very night, he knew and other historians knew that Babylon was about to fall, that the enemies were at the gates. And by the way, they know the exact date when Babylon fell. This chapter that we just read, we know the exact date. It happened on October 12, 
539 BC. We know exactly when that chapter happened, the scene there, October 12, 539 BC. On that very night, as Belshazzar and his guests were partying to oblivion, just going crazy, the Persians and the Medes were camped outside the city, preparing to attack. So then here's the question. How could Belshazzar party like that with destruction at his doorstep? I mean, was he crazy? Was he in denial? Was he simply not aware? But what was going on? Why was there this insane orgy and this crazy party happening when the enemies were right outside the gates about to attack? Well, without going to all the political and military events leading up to this, historians say he probably did know the Persians and the Medes were outside. He did know that they were planning to attack, and he simply didn't care. And here's why. Belshazzar was confident. In fact, he was so confident, he became careless. Because he knew. He knew what a great city Babylon was. He knew that it was impregnable. So here he is, partying like crazy, and he's thinking in his heart, Babylon is too strong. The walls are too thick. In fact, Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian again, he said they have stockpiles of food in that city that could last for years. So Belshazzar knew that. He's like, I don't care. No one's going to get in here, and even if we're stuck here, we have food for years. And the Euphrates River, the famous river in the Middle East, ran right through the center of that city. So they're like, we have no problems with water either. We have plenty to drink, plenty to eat. We can stay here for a long time. And so for these reasons, Belshazzar thought, I'm safe. I'm protected. Nothing can harm me. And he believed he's the one who made all that happen for himself and everyone there. So in a way, he really was the hero of the party. He really was the hero in front of all the guests. And so why am I spending so much time on this? It's because that is the illusion of character. That is the illusion of character. See, character is one of those things that people think they have more of than they actually do. And I believe probably all of us here as well. Character is one of those things that people think they have more of than they actually do. Going back to the work context, but you may hear confessions at work as you get to know your coworkers, and you may hear confessions about people making certain mistakes at work, about areas that they can grow in, about skills that they need to develop more. You know, people share, right? They try to be honest with one another. But here's one confession you probably will never hear at work. You know, I don't have a lot of character. Okay, when's the last time you heard that confession? I don't have a lot of character, to be honest. And why is that? Well, it's because everyone believes they have more character than they actually do. Character is also one of those things where people think their character is stronger than it actually is. They believe it's stronger. And like Belshazzar sitting inside that city thinking, I'm a decent person, right? I'm a hero. Some people at work even see me as a hero. What could possibly happen to me? And so people like Belshazzar walk around life thinking like that. You know, I'm not perfect, right? People say that all the time. You know, let's not get too proud here. I'm not perfect, but I'm a person of character. Again, not perfect, but I have character. I'm decent. I'm a good person. I work hard, and there are things happening in my life, you know? People can even, you know, follow my example. And say so they go around thinking that, but yet it is a false sense of security. It's an illusion of character. It's actually a false self, a false self. And our culture right now encourages the false self perhaps more than any other culture that's ever existed. I know that's a sad comment to say, but it's true. 
And the reason is because we live in a society that does not elevate people based on their character, but rather based on power and influence. And we know that. It's so clear. Okay, in our culture right now, character does not have much street cred. It doesn't re- go very far. I mean, yeah, we give lip service. But what people really look to is power and influence, right? You know, recently I looked up Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of 2023. And when I looked at that list, the usual names were on it. People like Elon Musk, Lionel Messi, the soccer player. He recently won the World Cup. He should be on there. Beyonce, I guess. (laughs) Mitch McConnell, that one was kind of weird. Joe Biden. But these people were on that list. And I don't know any of these people personally, but I can tell you they're not on that list because they have the best character. But rather, what makes them so influential We know why. It's their power, their talent, their charisma, their fame, their fortune. These are the things that our culture lifts up. And our culture, by the way, is probably the first to produce people who are famous for just being famous. Immediately, you know who I'm talking about. (laughs) People who are just famous for being famous. People with no discernible trait or quality to explain how they got to where they are. And yet, millions follow them. Millions admire them. They're just famous for being famous. So this is our culture. But so what, right? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because this culture that promotes the false self and this illusion of character, just like Belshazzar, is the same place we live and work in. This is where you live. This is where you work. Every day when you go into work, this is the culture you're dealing with. We work in environments that push us to keep up appearances. You don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you guys fudged a little bit on your resume? Come on. Let's be honest, right? I was the director of this project. Really, were you or were you just kind of participating? Were you really the director? Come on, (laughs) right? I started this organization. Really, you started it? Or was it just you hanging out in your classroom at your school with two other guys (laughs) and you had this idea? No, I started that group, you know? But we boost our resumes. We appear like we're doing more than we actually are. And so the workplace is actually one of the most fertile places where the, where the self, the false self can grow, this illusion of character. You know, I came across this survey, but back in 2013, there was a survey taken of 2035 professionals living in the U.S. And this is what they found, kind of interesting. But they found that one in four people feel like they are in a work environment where they can't be who they really are. Kind of a very interesting survey. But that's a lot, right? 25% of working professionals in the U.S. feel like they are in an environment where they can't be who they really are. But that shouldn't matter, right? Because work is a place where you focus more on doing than being. Isn't that obvious? You go to work and you got to do more than be. You might have heard your boss say, we don't really care who you are in your personal life. Just look respectable here at work and get things done. That's what we care about. And yet, being, in other words, who you are at the very core, in other words, your character, that is what will ultimately determine the quality and endurance of your work. Okay, that, that is what will last. Okay, not what you put on your resume, not what other people say about you. It is character. So there is an illusion of character. It's rampant today. And it was also rampant in Babylon. But... That doesn't last forever because God, he sees right through that clearly. We already know this. And because he sees it, he cannot stay quiet. 
but he will come, he will speak. And so this brings us to the revealing of character, the revealing of character. If you look at verses five through seven, it says, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and rode on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me his interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar was scared. He was terrified. And here he is trying to bribe somebody, right? Anybody? What's going on here? I'm just having a good time in this Floating hand appears? Maybe he rubbed his eyes? I mean, is this real? Is writing some words on the wall? By the way, this is where that expression comes from, the writing on the wall. I don't know if you guys have heard that. It's kind of going out of vogue now. But the writing is on the wall, right? But this is where it comes from. There is writing on the wall. It doesn't look good. And so here he is terrified in front of thousands of his lords and wives and concubines. They're parting and sitting up to high heaven, and then suddenly the floating hand appears, the music stops, everything goes death silent. And by the way, as unbelievable as this sounds, archaeologists, going back to history again, have dug up evidence confirming some of these details. It's amazing. But one archaeologist named Caldaway, he found what many believe is the actual room. They actually found the room in the site where the palace of Babylon was. But while excavating the site of ancient Babylon, this archaeologist found a large room within that site that that was 55 55 feet wide and 169 feet long. So 55 feet by 169 feet. And this archaeologist said that on the far wall from the entrance, along the far wall, was a niche in the center of the wall. Most likely that's where the king's throne was. That's where he sat. And hear this, amazing, but the interior of the room they found was covered with plaster. We just read that, verse 5. And a hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. So that's amazing. Archaeologists have confirmed all this. A large room within the palace site, and it was covered with plaster on the inside. This is the room, I believe, where the hand wrote. So suddenly, in a moment, as the hand appeared, the atmosphere of the entire room changed, and God showed up. He showed up, and he has something to say. And right here in this moment, it says immediately, Belshazzar's face changed color. It probably went from a rosy pink color from drinking to a pale white color. All the blood was gone out of his face. It also says his limbs gave way. Literally, in the Aramaic, it says literally the joints of his hips went loose. So whether he couldn't stand, he was wobbly, or some Bible scholars actually say this refers to Belshazzar wetting his pants. Something went loose down here, okay? You can use your imagination. But some people say he wet his pants. And then finally it says his knees began to knock together. Why were his knees so close together? Maybe because he had just wet his pants. (laughs) Maybe that's why his knees were so close, knocking. Regardless, this shows Belshazzar was immediately shaken to the core when God entered the room. So that's what we need to understand. The moment God appeared, he entered the room, he began to shake. 
And this is a common response in scripture when God appears. Things begin to shake. This is often the response. When Isaiah, a different prophet, different book, entered the temple, and he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filling the temple, what happened? Smoke filled the temple, and the entire foundations of the threshold began to shake. In Amos 9.9, God said, I will shake Israel. Haggai 2.7, God said, I will shake the nations. Isaiah 13.13, God said, I will shake the heavens and the earth. God's saying, I'm going to shake things at greater and greater intervals. And all those verses are talking about the same event. God is saying, when I appear on the great day of the Lord, everything's going to shake. So it's clear, when God appears, things begin to shake. And the reason that happens is because God is the only being in creation that is unshakable. He's the only unshakable being. And when he comes upon a people or a nation or anything that is not of God, that is not from him, then that weight and that pressure begins to shake everything. That is what scripture is saying. All that is weak, all that is flimsy, all that is not of God is shaken. And in that moment, it's revealed. And brothers and sisters, this will happen in your life as well. It will be revealed. All that is in your life that is not of him. Hebrews 12, 26 says this. And God's voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, not, I'm sorry, this expression yet once more denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So Peter's so clear. The reason why God comes and he begins to shake things in our lives, in our community, in our church, even our nation, is to reveal. And what is he revealing? The things that are not of him, things that are created, the things that we have put our hope and trust in that are not him. And then it reveals the things that cannot be shaken, the things that are truly from him. So what is all this, brothers and sisters? This is God revealing the true character of a person. He is revealing the true character of a person. So on this terrible night, in the midst of this debauchery and orgy, God shows up, and in that moment, in an instant, Belshazzar begins to shake, right? He's violently shaking. He can't even keep his knees together. And immediately, in that moment, his true character was revealed. And it wasn't just Belshazzar, but his shaking pointed to the entire nation of Babylon that was going to shake. The entire nation was going to shake because Belshazzar, as king, represented the nation. So these impressive walls, and by the way, they were like 80 plus feet thick. Amazing walls, 160 plus feet tall. And then another 100 feet towers built on top of that. Massive walls, massive buildings, beautiful gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the lushness, the extravagance, all of that didn't matter. It was going to all get shaken. And all of it would be revealed to be an illusion of greatness, an illusion of character. It's just fake. All of it was false. None of it was from God. See, God does this because without this fundamental shaking of who we are, God knows. We're not going to know who we are. We don't know ourselves. And that's because human beings were complicated. The Bible even says the human heart is deceitful above all things who can know it. We don't truly know ourselves. But the human being has many layers, and so God must shake in order to reveal who we are, even to our, ourselves. I mean, God knows us through and through, but we don't know ourselves. 
So for example, human beings, you can kind of see human beings kind of like a building. But at the very top, the part of us that everybody sees, that's the public life. But we all have a public life. And so we go around, we say certain things, we treat people in a certain way, and it's all catered, right, in a certain way. It's all, it's all manicured in a certain way so that we have a certain impression on people, a certain appearance. Well, that's the public life. Okay, that's the part of the building that's above ground. But second, we also have a personal life. Okay, not everybody sees your personal life. These are the people who are closest to you. Maybe your spouse if you're married, your closest friends, your parents. And this would be like the inside of the building. See, from the street on the outside, you don't see the inside of the building. You actually need to go inside. And so human beings are like that as well. The people that you let into your life, they see your personal life. So they see the things that you're really into. They see the frustrations you have, you know, maybe some of the little flaws that you show them. But this is your personal life. That is the part that you allow people to see who come in. But there's a third layer, and we all, we all have this, all layers. Everyone has a secret life. You have a secret life. I don't even need to talk to you. I already know that. I have a secret life. And this is what only you see. This is the part of life that you pretty much nobody else sees. This is only the part of your life that you let certain people, maybe very few, right? Hopefully you have a good marriage. Maybe your spouse sees. But many times even your spouse doesn't see this part. And this would be like the part of the building that's underground. And you can say this is the most foundational part of you. Because this is the part of your life that all the rest are built upon. And so no matter what your public life may appear like, no matter what your personal life may look like, it's the secret life that everything rests on top of. It's your secret life. So this is the most foundational part. And when God comes to a person and begins to shape their life, this is what he's wanting to reveal. See, the public life, everybody sees it. But he's wanting to reveal the things in the personal life and then most importantly, the secret life, the secret life. So even though Belshazzar was sitting there looking like a hero in front of all the people, okay, he was just a champion of this party. Okay, I'm the one protecting you. I'm the one who has stocked up all this food and protected you with these walls. And you know, when God showed up in a, secret, in a single moment, all of that was revealed. Right? His secret life, his personal life, his true character. As we'll see, he was nothing but an immoral, cowardly blasphemer. Okay, we're going to see that more next week. But he was also involved in conspiracies and murder, as we know from history. But he was a terrible man. Jesus said in Luke 8, 17, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. It's almost like a promise, Jesus is saying. I almost promise you, I guarantee you, there's nothing hidden in anyone's life that will not be made public. There's nothing secret that will not be made known and come to light. And oftentimes, the way God does it is he will shake us to reveal our true character. And this shaking can come from anything. It can come from a conviction from the word of God, like Belshazzar. There is a word. God spoke something. It causes you to shake. It could be an unexpected event. Suddenly, it's just something happened in your life. Maybe it's a loss. Maybe it's a tragedy. But oftentimes, it also comes from work itself. Work itself can be a shaking. You know, last week I mentioned that book, Virtue and Vice at Work. But going back to that, the author said some very helpful things. But let me read this. But he said, work is a unique kind of crucible, a place where a fire is lit. 
Because sooner or later, it will reveal what we're made of. Day after day, we wake up and bring our broken selves to work, whether in an office or on Zoom. And whom do we find there? Other broken selves. To put it another way, there is no context quite like work to remind us that we have no choice but to find a way to live with ourselves and with other people. So he's saying there's nothing like work to make you face yourself and face other people, and we're all broken. We're all broken. It's like a crucible. It reveals what you're made of. And then he says, and there is no context quite like work to remind us how difficult that is. Our daily work is a breeding ground for sin, for vice. You know, um, I remember a few years ago when Ravi Zacharias passed away. I remember where I was. I was sitting in my office. I was a part of this conference, a denomination conference online. I remember literally when I heard the news. During the lunch break, I was kind of surfing online, and I heard the news of Ravi Zacharias passing away. He was that famous apologist, that um, defender of the faith. He was a Bible teacher. But when he passed away, there was a lot in his life that nobody knew about. But he lived this kind of secret life. He had a public life. We all knew that. He had a personal life. Some people knew. But then he had a secret life nobody knew, even his closest friends. His children, his wife didn't know. But Ravi Zacharias, later on, it came out. Some of you guys have heard this. But he had multiple, multiple allegations of sexual harassment. He had this ongoing affair with this woman in Thailand. I mean, all kinds of stuff came out. And, and this was so interesting. But when all that stuff came out, the reason he gave for why he did what he did, because some of the women asked him, even, even as, it was being, you know, as it was happening, they're like, why are you doing this? Right? You're such a famous Christian leader. And this is the reason that he gave. He's like, well, my work is so stressful. It was an amazing answer. He's like, the reason why I need this and I'm doing this, why I want to be with you is because my work is so stressful. And so for him, that was where he was tested. His work and all the stress of being this international Christian leader and traveling and speaking all the time. And he's like, ah, it's so stressful. And like this author said, that is the crucible where sooner or later, Everything that we are, what we're made of, gets revealed. And so according to him, that stress at work is what pushed him to do all these things. And you know what? That's who he was, unfortunately. I liked him. I actually read his books. I listened to him all the time. He helped me in my faith when I was in college. And yet, at the end of it all, that's who he was. And Ravi said, it was my work. It was the stress of work. And so oftentimes, yes, God's word, events in our lives can shake us, but it's your work, right? And so as we've been talking about work for all these weeks, I I encourage you, every Sunday I want to encourage you, be aware, keep your eyes open. But as you just kind of walk into work, rubbing your eyes, right, you're tired on Monday morning, but there are things going on there. There are things that God may be pointing out and highlighting. He's like, be aware. This is a very intense and stressful environment, I know. And there are things that are being revealed. You need to be aware of what God is saying. So in this moment, Belshazzar, God appeared and things were revealed. As he began to shake, his true character was revealed. He was just a coward. He he had nothing of substance. There was nothing heroic. There was nothing in Belshazzar that would protect the people that night. In fact, in a few hours, he was going to be dead. And so Belshazzar, being terrified, he urgently wanted somebody to come and reveal the meaning of the handwriting. I mean, wouldn't you want to know, like, what, what is that? It just doesn't look good. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm just scared, but what is that? 
Now, Bible scholars don't know why they couldn't read that. Maybe God's handwriting was different. <laughs> he used different curvature of Aramaic. Some people have given, given that explanation. Other people say maybe it was because they were so drunk they couldn't see it clearly. But I think the best explanation is it was just three words, not even a sentence. So they could read the words, they just didn't know what the words meant. Mene, tekel, parson. They're like, what is that? They just didn't know what the words meant. And so Belshazzar, in this kind of maniacal panic, right, he's scared. He calls all his magicians, all his wise men, call them all in. And then this scene, we've seen it before. Please, somebody tell me, right? Show me the dream. Show me this writing. Tell me the interpretation. And these guys had no clue. Makes you wonder how they kept their jobs, right? But here they are, same, same group again, same band of, you know, no nothings. So here they are. They didn't know. And then just at that moment, it says the queen stepped into the room, verse 10. And so who's this person? Bible scholars pretty much all agree this was Belshazzar's mother. Okay, all the wise and concubines were already there. They are partying already. But the mother, this queen mother, stepped in. She was not at the party. She had simply heard what had happened. And then she was the only one with the authority to just walk in and barge in on this party. So here she is now, the queen mother, and she basically told Belshazzar, go call Daniel. Go call Daniel. She said in verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And when you read that, you should immediately recognize, oh, that sounds familiar. Who said that? Who said that? Do you guys remember? Nebuchadnezzar said that years ago. In the earlier chapters, he said that. Daniel, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And so the queen mother must have been there to witness all of that. She was probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife. She saw all of that. She recognized all of that. Or maybe she was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. So Belshazzar was told, get Daniel. And he had no other option, so he called for Daniel. So here's Daniel, called in now, an 80-year-old, 80-something-year-old, an old, old man. He walks in. And he's told, show us the meaning. Okay, what, what is that? Right, those words right there. What is that? And so he called Daniel to give them the meaning of the handwriting, but God was going to reveal so much more than that. But God would eventually reveal to Belshazzar his very own soul and his destiny. And you're going to have to come back next week to find out, okay? But that is what God revealed through Daniel. But this is what God is always wanting to do. And in Belshazzar's case, he was revealed his character to him, not to save him, not to restore him, but to bring judgment. But for us, God wants to bring revelation to restore us, to heal us. And so with that, let's just come before the Lord. And let's just bow our heads before him. This is a holy God. He knows you. And there is no way that this holy God who knows us and sees us through and through, he sees the public life, the personal life, and the secret life. He sees it all. There is no way that he will leave us, his children, in that place. There is something in our secret and personal lives that is not of him. That is actually something destructive, something false. He will not leave it there. But he will come. He will point it out. He will reveal. 
and he does it to save us. Brothers and sisters, he does it to save us. So let's just come before him right now and let's just, for a moment, come before this God who just sees everything within us. Let's come before this God.